from the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Except this time, my guest and I didn't go to brunch, because it was a live show, and we thought it would be awkward to have people watch us chew on stage. An Emmy Award-winning movie producer, Michael Swanson is also a television studio executive, serving as a vice president of production at NBC Universal. He graduated from Notre Dame in 1993 and was back on campus in June for the university's annual reunion weekend. Michael has been involved behind the scenes on some of the most acclaimed comedies in recent years, shows like Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. In this episode, he takes us inside the table reads he remembers most, the studio production system that moves a show from the initial pitch to air, and the evolving TV landscape of broadcast networks and streaming services. We also talk about the independent entertainment production company, Faith Filmworks, he founded with his wife, Christine. And as for the rock climbers scaling the wall in front of us, well, let's just say there was a lot going on in the Duncan Student Center that day. Michael Swanson, welcome. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for having me. It's we, great to be here. And your wife, Christine, I feel like we have a very captive audience right in front yes. of us, so that's a good thing. Um, I wanted to start with your vice president of production at NBC Universal, and in that role there, you have overseen or currently oversee studio production on really some of the most acclaimed comedies of the last several years. I'm a big comedy fan, so running through. Uh, your IMDb there, it's impressive. It shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Master of None, Parks and Recreation, The Good Place. I'm wondering, if we were talking about this a little bit earlier, what does work look like for you when you go into the office every day, working on those kinds of shows, and what do you do for those shows? Every day is very different. I always say that there is a phone call or an email that I can receive in the morning that could change the whole course of my day just based on what the content of, of, of that problem is or email is or phone call is. Um, What I do for those shows that you mentioned is my job is to put out fires ultimately and to address problems or issues. I have to make sure that our shows stay on budget, the shows that I oversee stay on budget. Uh, I make sure that we execute those shows efficiently, produce them, make them ready for television or the streaming service in Master of None's case. Um, But every day is different. Um, I attend table reads for all of my shows each week. Uh, Because I do mostly single-camera comedies, we have, except for Master of None, for all my shows, we have a five-day shoot week. We shoot five days. Uh, We'll start shooting on a Monday. uh, But also on that Monday, we're prepping for the following week's episode. Uh, So we're shooting... We're location scouting, we are having a production meeting, we're having a logistics meeting, we're having a tone meeting. So many things go into making sure that this show or the next week's episode will be produced efficiently. Um, And one thing I must say about comedies, 
is it's, it's, it's kind of fun to go to work yeah. because uh, I'll go to a table read and I get to laugh. I've worked on some really fun shows. And my very first show at NBC Universal that I was assigned to oversee was a show called Community. I'll share. And Community yeah. was a show that was challenging at times, but was very fun to work on. What aired, those were perfect episodes, yeah. you know, very engaging. People love those episodes. But behind the scenes, from a production standpoint, uh, you know, it was sometime trial, sometimes trial by fire with that show. And I learned a lot. You know, again, I had done movie production for so many years. And although television is production too, they're different kinds of animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a movie, for example, when we are about to produce a movie, if, for example, one of our actors um, has a delay because the, the project that he or she is currently on is delayed, we can push our start date. Right. Uh, if the script, for example, we felt needed a little bit more work, we can push our date. For television, you have an air date. So you're starting that episode on a Monday, and you have to finish it by that Friday because that following episode is going to begin uh, next week. And you have an air date that you have to hit. You have to do post. Uh, So although I had done movies, by the time I cut up television, it's still production, but it's just a much faster pace. Mm -hmm. And when you have shows that can, if the script is coming later than it should come, and you don't have adequate time to properly prep for the following week's episode, that can be challenging um, and can cost more money because now you're dealing with rush, rush fees and things like that. Uh, so my first show was Community and then I moved on to Parks and Recreation and, Park and Parks and Recreation was really such a wonderful experience and a fun show to work on mm-hmm. and we did so many things. I, so, I should say this. I love, I love thinking outside of the box, especially as a producer uh, or working in productions, because when the writers create something that may not seem typical for a television show to do, mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, let's figure out how we can pull this off. Right. Even if the, and those not... two shows are great examples. I mean, both of them. I mean, Community especially was the yes. definition of let's do an animated episode. Exactly. Or I mean, it was all, but both of those shows, I mean, the creative energy kind of leapt off the screen. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. The difference is you have to determine how you can pull these things off, how you can execute, execute these episodes with the limited amount of, of financial resources that you may have to work with um, and still give the writers what, right. what they want to see on screen. And so that becomes exciting for me. I, I'm just, I mean, one of the things that I think is so cool about what you do imagine the experience of being at table reads on these shows. Imagine each show has its own feel. Maybe each yes. episode has its own feel. I'm not going to put you on the spot and say best story you've ever had from attending a table read, but I'm wondering if you had to say a top five story from one of the shows you've worked on of being in that room when a table read goes on. Is there anything that comes to mind as one of the better <laughs> better memories or crazier memories or stranger memories that you've had? I must say a very heartfelt memory that I had was when we read the last episode for Parks and Recreation, the series finale that was written by Mike Shore, who was the co-creator of Parks and Recreation and the showrunner for that show, and Amy Poehler, and Mike also directed that episode. So we got into the room, this was episode 713, you know, it was the final 
the final episode, and we knew that this would be a moving table read. And so um, I should also mention, before I continue with the story, is Parks and Recreation, uh, we would have our table reads in the writer's room. So it was a very tiny space. Right. But it's very important for, and this is on all of my shows, you don't want to mess with the magic. So if this room works well, the ambience is good, and you know, the acoustics are, are really great in this room, despite the size, this is where, for the course of that show, where you want to continue to go for your table reads. And so we were in this tiny writer's room uh, for Parks and Recreation, and that last episode, I mean, a lot of the actors just couldn't keep it together. It was so emotional. And, and then the crew department heads around the room. I mean, this is a show that they had worked on, many of them from the pilot episode, uh, so seven seasons. And, and I was sitting there, and that was one that I will always remember. Um, same for shows. I've had a couple of shows that have reached 100 episodes, like Community. Mm-hmm. I remember that, that table read, uh, uh, you know, Parks and Rec, I remember that. Uh, and then most recently, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Last season, we reached 100 episodes. And those are milestones, especially in today's world, uh, for, especially for single-camera comedies, to reach 100 episodes. So I remember key moments like that. And I remember Master of None. I remember having a table read in Modena, Italy, because we were over there shooting our first two episodes. Uh, so we had a table read. I believe it was for episode two. You know, we were over there, and we beamed it back to Los Angeles so the Netflix and Universal Television executives could could tune in. Uh, so yeah, a lot of, fortunately, a lot of wonderful moments like that I've had the, the pleasure of experiencing over the years. Is, you just saying the 100th episode, is that also, this? I think this is just a layman's understanding, I have no idea if it's right or not. I believe at some point the idea of getting to that 100th episode for syndication purposes was kind of that was a goal. Is that accurate? Is that still accurate? Is that something that a show shoots for for that purpose? That used to be the goal mm-hmm. because once you reached 100 episodes, that is instant syndication, and as you know, you know it's very lucrative. You know, I think of Seinfeld and shows like that 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 hit, hits that benchmark, but uh, but not necessarily anymore. It's more of a feather in your cap. Uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, for example, went into syndication uh, after the first season. Um, so it's just a different landscape. There's so many outlets now for our television shows that you don't have to have as many episodes and can still license those shows to, to cable channels or Hulu or different streaming services before you hit, hit 100 episodes. I'm glad that you mentioned Brooklyn Nine-Nine there because when I was running through that list of shows you've worked on before, people who know comedy know that that is an example of a show that at least to this point, has not aired on NBC. It's going to start airing on NBC now, coming over from Fox. But I'm wondering if you use that as kind of an example. I, I think in the average person's mind, you hear NBC and you kind of conflate, or any network, you kind of conflate all these things together and don't necessarily think about the difference of there's NBC, the television network, there's NBC Universal, the creator of content, and NBC Universal could create something that's not necessarily on NBC, the television network. Can you talk a little bit about how those two entities relate to each other, the production company, and not even NBC specifically, but just how that works with a production company and then a network? Under the NBC Universal umbrella, we have our studio entity, which is, tele- which is Universal Television, 
and we have our sister network, NBC, which everyone knows NBC. And a lot of people may not realize, to your point, that Master None, for example, is a universal television property, you know, IP, that we license to, in that case, Netflix or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But what usually happens is if, if we have show creators come and pitch an idea to the studio creative team and they become very excited about this project and want to get behind it, those creative executives may understand pretty quickly that, you know what, this outlet would be a better fit for this show than NBC. And ultimately, you want to get behind a show and produce a show that can find an audience at the proper location, the proper, you know, with the proper fit. And that's not always NBC. Uh, so they'll do their due diligence and they'll shop that show around to um, the homes that could be a better fit. Mm-hmm. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine, back then when that show was pitched, it just felt like Fox mm-hmm. was a better fit. And so it was, pitched, it was pitched a lot of places, but Fox is the one that was most excited about the show and ordered it to pilot. So we, as a result, produced the show but then would license it to Fox. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah, so Fox uh, decided that they wanted to move in another direction mm-hmm. and kind of change up their lineup for their network. And as a result, that freed up Brooklyn Nine-Nine to go elsewhere, mm-hmm. in this case, NBC. I, I think it's, it felt like a big, uh, a big homecoming because <laughs> Dan Gore is, is the, and Mike Shore, uh, are the co-creators of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Dan Gore had worked up through NBC for years and he was a writer on Parks and Recreation and eventually with Mike created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So it was really nice for them to come back to NBC. Mm-hmm. I think NBC always felt that Brooklyn Nine-Nine could have been the, the series that got away. <laughs> and sure. uh, it was just a you know, perfect timing for it to come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I was just at a meeting last week and heard the pitch for season six. So I think uh, it's going to be a wonderful season. I think people are going to be very happy with it. You talked a little bit there about finding, you know, you have this this piece of content and finding the right home for it, that it might not always, NBC Universal, it might not always be NBC is the right home. And I'm wondering in kind of a broader sense, if there's any, at the moment, if there's any conventional wisdom or philosophy in uh, the, the television industry about what makes for a good streaming show versus what makes for a good traditional, more traditional network show, cable show, um, or if it isn't that, if, if it's still just kind of a show-by-show basis of do we have interest in, in, uh, in putting this on our air or on our, on our platform or whatever the case might be. I think it is a show-by-show, show, you know, uh, on a show-by-show show basis, but I do think what we're seeing on the streaming side, what we're seeing from Amazon Studio and Netflix... Um, even some of the original productions for Hulu, uh, they're affecting what we're seeing on the broadcast network side. For example, there was a time, if you were to watch one of the big broadcasters, a show on one of those networks, sometimes you get a repeat. But now we're finding that we're airing original episodes week after week after week because the audience has become more accustomed to binge-watching like we, you know, we'll watch ten episodes, thirteen episodes over a weekend. We want to know what's going to happen. What will the outcome of that season be? And then we'll wait another year for the season for the next season. 
Uh, as a result, it has, I think, forced the broadcasters to say, okay, we need to air these episodes sooner. We're seeing shorter orders. Instead mm -hmm. of 22 episodes, now we're seeing short orders of 13 episodes on the networks. And, uh, and, and no repeats, really. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to see original episodes. So, uh, so it's really interesting to see how the streaming services are influencing what we do mm -hmm. on the network or what the broadcast network mm -hmm. works do. I, my own family included in this, and you may have heard one of my children yelling in the background, and anyone listening to this who's wondering what those thud thuds are right now, and then we're in the Duncan Student Center at Notre Dame, and those are people, I think, lifting weights above us, dropping the free weights. Yeah. Um, not literally above us, on a floor and, above and us. And rock climbing. And rock climbing, yes. It's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on in this space. Um, so we're, we're a house that, you know, we're cord cutters. We get our content, most of it. We have Netflix, but we have Hulu Live, and we stream things that way. I know NBC owns a share of yes. Hulu. Where do you see that relationship between streaming television and more traditional television going over the next decade? I mean, it certainly changed a lot of things already, and you were just talking about some of the impact on what kind of content gets produced. I'm wondering even maybe what might change more for us as consumers of that content in the coming years as a result of broadcast television, cable television. It's not the only way to access these things anymore. Mm -hmm. Even my children, you know, are watching programs on devices. You know, my son was watching a Netflix documentary that I saw on the television. Right. And just the other day, I'm like, Kenji, what are you watching? And he's watching the same documentary, but he's watching on his iPad. I said, wait, you don't want to see it on the big screen? It's like, no, this is fine. He had his earplugs in. And, um, so it's hard to say. I, you know, I think... I, yes, I think things will continue to evolve. Um, I do think one of the many ways broadcast networks can remain relevant um, is to continue to produce live content. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see more musicals, which I think is really brilliant with how NBC brought the live musicals to television, or maybe I should say brought back live musicals to television. They have become kind of these family event, you know, uh, things where people can look forward to, and they do really well. Uh, sports obviously does really well live another live event sports do really well for broadcast networks um, but it's really interesting I don't know I haven't figured it out yet I don't know how it will affect our series you know scripted shows we're seeing even more unscripted mm -hmm. um, big finales you may world of dance and the boys um, and even more to the point where Universal Television Alternative Studio was launched maybe about two years ago, and they're developing so much in-house and and just making phenomenal shows that are attracting an audience so quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see more of that. Another way that networks have changed is there used to be this model where you'll see original shows get launched, you know, in September. You know, the new fall lineup. Right. Now shows are being launched, even scripted shows are being launched in the summer. I think Marlon is a show that's a good example uh, that premieres in the summer. 
so, so again, that goes back to how the streaming services have really influenced um, what we do on the network side. Shows are being produced and shot all year long now, and as a result, shows are being premiered throughout the year, and not just on that fall schedule or even mid- as a mid-season replacement. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears on you a little bit, in addition to your work as a studio executive, you're half, one half of a husband and wife filmmaking team with writer-director Christine Swanson, um, and you have your own independent production con- company, Faith Filmworks, and I'm wondering... What do the two of you look for there in terms of the projects that you're trying to develop through your own, your own company? I would say heartwarming films, movies that can move you, movies that are values-based, uh, character-driven stories, um, and movies that you can walk away from thinking about, hopefully giving you a little bit more hope about life or relationships or family, uh, movies that can encourage you, inspire you. Those are some of the things that I think all of the movies that we, my wife Christine, has written in the past and directed in the past and projects that I've been a part of uh, through Faith Filmworks have all embodied uh, just feel good movies, you know. And I know you, I mean, you won your Emmy there for the Wayman Tisdale story, which is, I'm sure you've been congratulated many times, but that's a pretty... That's a pretty cool accomplishment. Thank pretty you. pretty Thank you. cool feather to have in your cap. You know, I'm, I'm really... When I think of the Wayman Tisdo story, that was a project that I got involved with a little later in the process, and uh, Brian Shortoff was the writer and director of the project, and uh, he came to me, and when I saw what this project could do, and saw some, actually sent me some clips of what he had filmed already, I watched it and it just brought tears to my eyes. And I felt that Wayman's story was a story that had to be told and that more people should see that kind of helped shape their perspective and help us all to understand, one, how fragile life is, how we should live each day to the fullest because tomorrow's not promised to any of us. Um, And probably more important about Wayman's story specifically was, and Wayman himself was, when you watch this documentary, and as he's battling cancer, and eventually he has his leg amputated, he still had this infectious smile and this this victorious demeanor because he understood that his faith in God would would carry him. You know, he felt that even despite all that he was going through, he he never let it get to him. Right. You know, and I always say you cannot watch the Wayman Tisdale story and and wake up and have a bad day. You know what I mean? Yeah. He uh, I mean he lost his life to cancer, but I think his struggle gave so much glory to God mm-hmm. and how. Um, I mean, he still created music. He still went on tour. Eventually, he went on tour in a wheelchair because, you know, he lost his leg. For people who don't know, I mean, he was an NBA basketball player as a musician at the same time. I mean, really diverse interests and really accomplished in, I mean, at least two very distinct fields. Yeah. So I I just thought it was important to share that story, to help tell women's story. 
uh, one, to honor him, but I also felt to glorify God through his life and through watching his life and how he lived so gracefully, especially toward the last few years of his life. Is there one thing or could you point to one thing? I mean, because you kind of have your foot in the very similar worlds, but also different complementary with an independent production company, studio production at NBC Universal. If there was one thing that you could change about the current production model process in Hollywood, could you point to something that you wish was done differently, whether it was identifying new voices or whatever that might be? Or does it is it is it a pretty efficient machine in terms of how it everything how it can be more efficient. <laughs> everything can can be more efficient, and that is one of the things that I task myself with. How can we do things better, even better? How can we improve things? How can we become even more efficient? Uh, diversity is really important to me. So sometimes, especially on the studio side or the Hollywood, this is just across the board. Uh, you know, there are a lot of cliques. You may have heard, you know, the boys' club, or you know, um, sometimes you may have difficulty trying to navigate the industry if you want to be a crew member or, or any really any facet of our of our business. It's, it's a very close knit kind of closed off business. So I try to help spread the wealth, if you will, and uh, internships are really important and giving people opportunities who may not already know people who work within the business uh, to help them find a job, uh, to help mentor people. Um, that's really important to me. And, and the, the wonderful thing about this is that I work for a company that also believes that this is very important and we put things in place to, to help facilitate more diversity and diverse voices and diverse crews and all those things but but it's not easy it's not always easy so uh, but that's something that that I think we can continue to improve and that I personally work on it's my last question it is the most hard-hitting question that my wife who is sitting back there I think she would punch me when we were done with this if I did not ask you this what can you tell us about what's going to happen in season three of the good place Nothing. Nothing? I can't, I can't mention Nothing? Anything. You just buckle up, <laughs> hold on to if your you, seat. If you don't watch this show, you really <laughs> should be. I, I feel like the two of us, we we go to bat for, not that it needs anyone to go to bat for it, but any one that we talk to is like, oh, I haven't seen it. It's like, no, you need to go watch it yes. right now. So and why, watch it again and again. Maybe, so if you can't tell us anything, how was, do you remember how that show was pitched? how it was pitched, what led to it, how it was summarized in terms of NBC saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to give this a shot. Because it is a really kind of unique concept. It's very unique. And I wasn't involved in the development of it or in the early... Uh, it was pitched to NBC. Uh, so I wasn't in those very early pitch meetings, but I got involved when NBC decided to order it from Universal Television okay. uh, to series. And again, I should go back to Mike Shore, who created The Good Place. So I've worked with Mike on so many shows now, he, from Parks and Rec to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and you know, he's one of the EPs on Master of None. So Mike is, is probably one of the best showrunners in our, in our industry. And what I love about him from a production standpoint is he is very production-minded. And, and he 
although he doesn't stifle his writing, but he's smart enough to, to know how to write to fit the budgets that we've been given right. to work within, which is which is always wonderful from, from just from my perspective. Uh, but most importantly is the track record that he has. He was also one of the writers on The Office, and he wrote on Saturday Night Live years ago. Uh, so he is he is an NBC baby, you know. His career, everything he's done in his career has been with our with our company. So when he pitched the show, I'm not sure if anyone in that room quite understood what was going on in his mind. He's also one of the best pitchers that I that I've listened to as well. Uh, but I'm sure it was exciting, and I'm sure there was a lot of head scratching at the end of it. But because of his track record and his vision for each show that he's been a part of, I think they knew to bet on this guy because they knew that wherever he took us would be interesting, it would be groundbreaking, it would be, you know, people would be talking about it, and it would be smart. It would be smart comedy. It's very, very smart. Yeah, it wouldn't be a show where, you know, I think it's important not to dumb movies, television. You don't have to dumb anything down for your audience. The audience is very right. intelligent. And this, and this is a show, for people who aren't familiar with it, where you have a group of people who have gone to heaven because they were good in their past life, and so that's the good place. And there's one woman, Eleanor, who knows there was a mess up, and she wasn't supposed to be there, and that's where it takes off from. Um, a lot of philosophy. Yes. Very fitting at a place like Notre Dame. A lot of talk of philosophy. I should also mention that Mike Shore, lucky for him, is married to J.J. Philbin, who is a Notre Dame alumna. Right. So he has a, he has a little Notre Dame connection as well. Um, the Good Place was a series that was, we didn't do a pilot. You know, most times you do a pilot and then you wait to see if it's going to be picked up by that network. The Good Place was a show that went straight to series. 13 episodes out the door. And when I remember shooting that first episode, we had, you know, we had like flying shrimp, a lot of visual effects, right. you know. And I personally hoped that this show would do well on a broadcast network because you have to suspend your belief a lot. Uh, you, you know, cable channels were doing this, obviously shows on Netflix. This was a very different show for a network, but I knew that if audiences gave the show time and go along for this ride, the payoff would be great. It's huge. It's, it, and it has, it's been, great. it has been huge, and people have really embraced the show and want more, and I think we've even found additional, an, an additional audience through through Netflix. I mean, the show has since begun streaming on Netflix. And, uh, and now we're shooting season three now, and I'm excited about that. And yeah. So I, unfortunately, I can't tell you anything. If you need someone to look at screeners or anything, <laughs> I can, you have my email address. And this is one, I should also say this, just to give you context. Yeah. This is one of the few shows that I've worked on where the scripts are not released, even internally. Um, to many people, mm-hmm. uh, so it's very yeah. things are very quiet about the show. That's because we don't want to spoil anything for right. you. You were really. I was trying it. to be very careful when I was summarizing it, not to spoil <laughs> anything. So I understand that. It's a, it's a fun show to work yeah. on. Michael Swanson, 
Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you to those of you who came on and listened. Um, yeah, that's our show. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more, visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast.